I just said it. We're one day into the work year, and I feel like I'm three days behind. So much to do, including this episode of Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Courtney Astafi, and we'll be talking about Mayor Justin Bibb of Cleveland in a bit. Let's begin with some state stuff. We already fully expect to vote in November on a measure to end Ohio's horrendous gerrymandering. But might we also see a ballot measure to protect voting rights that the gerrymandered legislature keeps eroding? Lisa, I didn't see this one coming. I didn't either. I was just going to say this kind of came out of the blue, but there's a group called Secure and Fair Elections, and they're seeking a constitutional amendment on this November's ballot. It's being proposed by Ohio Organizing uh, Collaborative out of Columbus and a coalition of black civil rights groups, including the Ohio NAACP. So what they're seeking uh, for this amendment, they want to have automatic opt-out voter registration. Uh, they also want to allow voter registration on election days. Currently, you can only register 28 days before an election. They want to allow counties to expand early voting hours if they need to and have multiple ballot drop boxes and in-person early vote locations. They also want to eliminate the photo ID requirement for in-person voting in lieu of signing in an affidavit affirming their identity at the polls. Uh, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative has hired a pretty big gun. Democratic strategist Corey Warfield will be running this. He worked on Sherrod Brown's 2012 senatorial campaign. He's also supported the abortion rights amendment here in Ohio. I, uh, I'm going to make a prediction that this, if it makes the ballot, is going to lose. And here's what I'm thinking. We saw last year the basic feeling of fair play in Ohio voters. They did not like, and polling later showed this, the idea that this legislature prohibited August elections and then tried to sneak something through in August that would destroy our voting rights. That whole sense of fair play matters in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I think most people in Ohio won't be crazy about getting rid of the photo ID because it's a basic way of ensuring it's you and we use it for everything else. I also think the idea of registering and voting on the same day will be, will be poised to voters by those who oppose mm -hmm. this as a way to create voter fraud. Mm -hmm. I think they overreached. I don't think they paid attention to what the voters did last year and played to it. There are elements of this that are great. I mean, counties should be able to have multiple mm -hmm. drop boxes. You know, Cuyahoga County is huge compared to other counties, but they they're they're going too far, and I think and Frank LaRose is already attacking mm -hmm. it, and I think they made themselves vulnerable. What about you? Well, I I, I think so too. And then there are some that are worrying that it's going to compete with the redistricting amendment, which we're pretty sure is going to make the ballot in November, and it might make it harder for that redistricting amendment to pass. Now, Attorney General Dave Yost he got the language, the first draft of the text and summary language last week and or earlier, and he said he rejected it because it failed to differentiate between voting on election day versus early voting for verifying voter, verifying voter ID. He also took issue with the secure and fair elections title. He said that title is untethered to actual proposed amendment, which is basically a list of specific regulations that may or may not result in increased voter access. And as you said, Frank LaRose immediately got out the guns. He says this is a political Trojan horse designed to make elections easier to steal on under the name of security and fairness. Pay attention, Ohioans. 
Yeah, and he's full of it. He's wrong, but it doesn't matter. They. This is the same thing that happened in Cleveland participatory budgeting. The people behind that overreached. They made it an enormous chunk of money, and they set up rules that didn't make sense, and the voters opposed it because it didn't make common sense. These folks are overreaching. They're not paying attention to the centrist voter. I think the centrist voter would like parts of this, but you, when you talk to people... Nobody really opposes the photo ID except mm-hmm. the far left. Mm-hmm. And and the center of Ohio is going to say, wait, taking away the photo ID, you do set up for fraud and, and people vote against it. You'll end up probably with a campaign. Vote yes on one, no on no two God. <laughs> or something. Well, it's just it's a shame that, that when you plan this kind of thing, there aren't centrists in the room to say, Hey, hey, let's be reasonable. The legislature has done really stupid things like limiting drop boxes and changing the voting days. So that we should fix that. But let's not make it ridiculous so that we are vulnerable. Uh, so I predict if this stays intact, it won't pass. But we'll see if it makes a ballot at all, because as you pointed out, Dave Yost has found flaws in it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did reporter Mark Bono find might happen to tipping of restaurant workers if the push to create a $15 minimum wage is successful in Ohio. Courtney. Yeah, the restaurant industry seems to be pretty split on this question. And and Mark explored this kind of in the context of what we're seeing as maybe another ballot issue coming down the pike in, in November. So Raise the Wage Ohio is hoping to get our minimum wage here raised to $15 an hour later this year at the ballot box. And supporters of that say that a more majority of voters would vote in favor of it. So they see it as a having a good chance of passing. But But like you said, this is raising concerns. And some praise um, from those in the restaurant industry. Mark Bono went out and talked to a variety of folks to get a perspective here. And and basically, it comes down to, you know, we know the restaurant industry has traditionally right, relied on tips for a major chunk of servers' wages. And, and moving the minimum wage from its current, you know, $5 or so for servers up to that $15 an hour across the board you know, s- some restaurant owners, including the owner of Mallorca in downtown Cleveland, Lori Torres, she told us that she she thinks customers will tip less because they will have just voted to raise the minimum wage for the servers and, and assume that the servers don't still need the tips. So she, she's raising concerns in that category. Torres also said it's kind of a, a, a mood issue almost. She said her servers always make more than $15 an hour based on the tips they're bringing in now. So it's never really been an issue. And and she said this will have a dramatic impact on how restaurants operate. You know, perhaps payrolls for employees will jump from 30% of the budget to 60% of the budget. We all know the restaurant industry operates on slim margins. So there's those concerns on, on that side of this equation. Yeah. And let's face it, if they do this, the prices of the food are going to skyrocket, which will make people even less likely to want to tip because they'll be saying, wow, I'm paying twice as much for my meal because these folks are making more. And that probably would play into the psychology of the tipping. But I don't know. I mean, a lot of restaurants, when you go in with a certain size group, the tips are required. Would the restaurants continue to do that? You know, there, there's a talk of maybe this could lead to service charges and in some kind of way to make up that difference, right? One worker even said, 
you know, put it out there kind of in stark terms. How do we pay for the free bread? Like that comes out of the tight, <laughs> tight margin. Mm-hmm. You got to make the numbers work is really the argument on that side. But we also heard from workers and SEI local, SEIU Local One, which is a big supporter of this wage increase campaign. And workers, they say that workers are going through economic hardships, just like everyone else. They deserve a livable wage that provides for their families in this era of inflation and cost increases everywhere. And and Sandra Ellington, we also spoke with her. She's with SEIU. And, and she questioned why servers have to hustle for tips when other workers don't have to do that kind of hustle to earn their paychecks and basically makes the point that servers are at the mercy of, of customers there for their for their wages, for their well-being, and their ability to afford things for their families. So, I mean, we do have two sides of this issue here, but we'll have to see how it plays out. On the other hand, we've seen no end of restaurants close in the past year or two because they can't get enough workers. I mean, it's just happened over and over and over again. Uh, and I wonder if you increase the wages for restaurant workers, if that would bring some people back into that area of employment and make them more robust. But, you know, if you're a good waiter or waitress, you can make a hundred bucks in tips a night if you're good, you know? Um, and yes, you should have a, have a gratuity on parties of six or more. This is coming from someone who waited tables for four years. So yeah, it's kind of, I made two thirty one an hour back then, but I made a living wage with my tips. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting debate, I, and I do worry, at least getting back to what you said in our first discussion, if this is also on the ballot, do people in Ohio just think, oh my gosh, this whole state's going progressive and they vote against everything, including gerrymandering, mm. which is critically important. We can't let that one die because our legislature is completely out of control. Interesting story by Mark Bona. Check it out on Cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. News broke over the weekend about a teenager who was trying to fly to Cleveland for the holidays, but ended up in Puerto Rico instead. Lisa, our reporter Molly Walsh, talked to him. What did he have to say? Yeah, he is 16-year-old Logan Luce of Florida. He was uh, flying from Florida to Cleveland to spend Christmas with his mom here in Ashtabula County, but he didn't realize he was on the wrong plane on Frontier Airlines until the landing announcement from the pilot saying, hey, we're landing in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So uh, that's how the saga began. But uh, his dad dropped him off at the Tampa airport on the 22nd of December. He got in line at his gate thinking that his plane was leaving early, but it was another flight. The Frontier Gate workers, and this is where it went wrong, Frontier Gate workers asked him to show his boarding pass, but they didn't scan it. So they let him on the plane without scanning his pass. He is apparently a nervous flyer. This is the first time he's flown without an adult. He texted his family on landing in San Juan, and then he immediately got a flight back to Tampa with help from Frontier Airlines to meet his dad. Um, He stayed at the airport hotel with his dad and then flew to Cleveland the next day. Frontier covered the cost of his Cleveland flight. They offered the family up to $200 in vouchers, which the dad refused. His mom, Alexis Luce, says they need to take accountability, and they're considering litigation against Frontier, which does not have an unaccompanied youth program, by the way. Yeah, the litigation seems odd to me. What, the oddest part of the story for me is that they didn't scan his ticket because right. I haven't flown anywhere in 20 years where they don't scan your ticket. I, I mean, the Tampa is a major airport. What are they thinking in putting somebody on a plane without scanning the ticket? 
Yeah, and like so, I said, that happened to me years ago. But then, you know, when I reached my next connection, they're like, oh, you never got on your plane back then. So, yeah, he would have been caught. A, but he was fine. He never left the airport. He immediately got back on a plane back to Tampa and reunited with his dad. But he was scared, he said. And he said he's going to stay off planes for a while. I think the only reason this was a national news story is because it was in the holidays and there was nothing else <laughs> happening. <laughs> you're, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of the holidays, Courtney, you wrote a story during the holiday period about Justin Bibbs' second year as mayor. Was it a good year for him? And what were his biggest challenges? Yeah, I think Mayor Bibb would say it was a good year for him. You know, we are officially at the midway point of his first term. And, you know, Bibb said he's further along in in his work at City Hall than where he thought he would be at this point in his term when he first took office. So he certainly sees himself as as further along than where he expected to be. And, you know, I, I think it's fair if we weren't really sure what to make of Bibb and his time in the mayor's office after his first year in office. I think we sure have more of a sense of his vision now that year two is wrapped up. In his mind, he was, you know, putting a lot of pieces in place last year. And and this year is when he really, or this past year in 2023 is when he felt he was really building momentum to his, you know, his full kind of scope of plans. And and when I sat down with Bib, he was in good spirits. And and I kind of went into it thinking, you know, this year. 2023 sure felt like the year of public safety and development to me uh, in 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 Bibb's world, and and he generally, you know, he agreed with that. So, you know, let's start with public safety here. It was a tough year in Cleveland. There was growing concern about violence. We kind of went down on some of our crime numbers in 2022, coming out of our pandemic era highs, and that rebounded a bit this year. So, armed robberies are up, homicides are inching up, and you know, just a lot of concern in the community. After that warehouse district shooting in the summer, in the early part of 2023, Bibb kind of called in for backup. He reached out to the marshals. He reached out to the Ohio State Highway Patrol. And even Bibb's critics on public safety said that move really made a difference in getting some of the violent folks off the street, this, this surge of help from outside the Cleveland Police Department. Meanwhile, we have a shrinking Cleveland police force. This has been a concern since Bibb took office. And this year we saw him take some drastic moves to combat that. He, he went back to the negotiating table in kind of an unusual setup with the two police unions and got what, what union leaders called historic wages, especially for higher ranking officers. He also got new benefits, incentives, and wage increases for cadets to kind of help at the beginning of the pipeline, getting more folks into Cleveland. We're really going to have to see how his efforts to build the police force play out in 2024. All these pieces are in place. Let, let's see where we go from here and if it can really make a difference and juice up our numbers. Like Frank Jackson, the former mayor, would say the true test of any mayor is with a crisis, that you won't know what the quality of the mayor is until they have a crisis. And Bibb really didn't have a crisis in his first year. For Jackson, every year was a crisis with the budget because they didn't have enough money until people passed the tax. But the public safety issue was a crisis. The Kia boys, the, the number of cars that were stolen by teenagers with guns, it was a rampage through Cleveland. Every other day, it felt like somebody was dying, somebody's getting shot. I mean, just this week, our own crime reporter's Kia was stolen. It has been a horrendous problem. 
And Bib knew it. This could erode everything. People were afraid to come into Cleveland. And like you said, he came up with a multi-tiered plan, bringing in the outside help to stop it in its tracks. They had helicopters up. They were arresting those guys left and right. And the Kia boys knew it, so they slowed down. And he came up with a very effective plan to draw more police applicants. He he met the crisis. I, I got to say, I'm impressed. Two years in, uh, the young mayor has done a very, very able job and with some bold ideas. Yeah, you know, I, on the crime front, he, you know, really his work in earnest to, to, to start putting all these multiple pieces in place to address crime and the shrinking police force, that really happened in, in midsummer, right? And when I was talking to Bib about this, he said that homicides were at a double digit percentage increase for the first six months of 2023. And once he started, you know, getting working with all these these initiatives, it was a single digit increase. So still not going down, down. But he said the velocity of homicides declined and found that to be an important point. Um, but if, if you don't mind, I mean, this segues really into the other kind of defining piece, I think, of, of Bibbs 2023 and what I think is going to be huge defining pieces of the rest of his term. And that's development. The, the mayor is full steam ahead on trying to make Cleveland into a revitalized, you know, hot city that people want to move to. We all know the cool cities that have out there and gotten a second life in the last decade, decade and a half. And he wants that for Cleveland. It's going to take a ton of money to do it. It's going to take a lot of work to do it. It's going to require the feds to kick in money. And it's going to require a lot of partnerships with developers and and working with people like Dan Gilbert, who wants to usher through his $4 billion plan to revitalize Terminal Tower in the East Bank of the Cuyahoga River. It's going to take whatever the stadium deal is that's reached on the lakefront to remake both the Brown Stadium and all the pieces around it that, that Bib envisions down there. So his focus has really been on those development plans. We saw him Get, get passage of ARPA money from the federal government to, to $50 million to assemble land to bring good jobs to Cleveland, he says, and $15 million to revitalize the Southeast side. But there's lots of money in there too for redoing downtown. And we're going to see a lot more to come on that, I think, in 2024. He, he says Cleveland missed a moment coming out of the recession in 08 and 09 to really remake itself. And he says he doesn't want to miss this moment coming out of the pandemic to really give Cleveland a leg up. It's interesting that he he acknowledges they missed the moment because the Washington Post did this preposterous piece before the holidays about how Cleveland's downtown is the model for the country. And everybody who's here is thinking, what are you? They just got spun and didn't really look very closely at what was going on. You know, I, I, I'm really interested in in how the mayor pursues this redevelopment of the city. I, I think everyone will have a close eye on this going forward. I, I you know, 2023 was an interesting year for Bibby. He, he got rid of his his former economic de- development director, who's going to be a key piece of these revitalization plans because he wanted someone friendlier to biz- business. And he brought in someone he thought would fit that bill. There's going to be lots of money flying, potentially to or with or alongside the Haslam's and Gilbert. So I think, you know, we're going to have to see how he how he approaches all this. I I talked to him. I wondered how how he reacts. A good chunk of his base are 
are progressives, you know, people who who may have been keen to support participatory budgeting, whose tagline whose tagline was streets over stadiums and stop giving money to wealthy developers. And he, he doesn't see um he doesn't see a conflict there. He said his base, including those progressive voters that backed him, want him to grow our city. And he said Cleveland can be pro-job creation, pro-business, but also pro-equity and pro-social justice. He said it's a false argument to say you either need to be a progressive or not be pro-business. And that's kind of the philosophy we'll see him run with. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Browns, despite a string of injuries to key players, are headed to the playoffs with a genuine chance of success with Joe Flacco at quarterback in a defense that is just punishing. The last quarterback to lead the team to an NFL title won't get to see it, having passed away on New Year's Day. Lisa Frank Ryan led a remarkable life. What does Terry Pluto tell us about him? Yeah, Frank Ryan, who was a Cleveland Browns quarterback from 1962 to 1968, died from Alzheimer's disease at 87 in a Connecticut nursing home. During his tenure with the Browns, he had a 52-22 and record. He threw... 134 touchdown passes, went to three Pro Bowls, and that's just the highlights of his career. He was, as you said, the last quarterback to lead the Browns to an NFL championship. That was in 1964 when they beat the Baltimore Colts, helmed by Johnny Unitas, 27-0. But he had a whole other life. He was a mathematics professor at Rice University in Houston, also at Yale and Case Western Reserve University. And while he was playing with the Browns, he was working on his PhD at Rice. He retired in 1970, and then he spent seven years in the U.S. House as director of development for the first computer voting system in, in Congress. He was an athletic director at Yale for 10 years. And here's, this is really cool. He, uh, people may not know what chronic traumatic encephalopathy is or CTE, but a lot of NFL players have suffered from this. It's, it's, it's changed their lives. They've died early. He is donating his brain to Boston University's CTE Center because he feels that maybe CTE might have led to his Alzheimer's diagnosis. I was talking to Terry yesterday. He has a big, long story about Ryan coming out, I think, this weekend. Uh, and he talked about the almost the miracle of him becoming a player. He got passed over repeatedly. He was on the bench for years, almost got into the game by accident, and then becomes this incredible football player who then goes on to do all the remarkable things you discussed. It's just, it's a tremendous story, but it is such a tragedy. The number of football players who have the brain get jostled around who end up with dementia at the end of their lives. I hope the research that they can do on his brain will help figure out ways to prevent it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Not that many years ago, Melt Bar and Grilled was the hot Cleveland area restaurant with long lines and a rapid expansion. The news since the pandemic has not been good for Melt, though, and Tuesday brought another tough decision for the owners. Courtney, what was it? Yeah, yesterday, Melt Bar and Grilled's location in Avon on Detroit Road, they, they permanently closed it. And the chain is now down to five restaurants. This follows two closures about a year ago, last February, when Melt closed its location in Canton and it closed its location in Dayton. So we're definitely seeing a thinning of the number of Melt restaurants out there. And with this Avon closure, we talked to owner Matt Fish. 
he kind of offered a similar sentiment that he offered last year when those other locations closed. He said that Mel feels like having a smaller footprint and getting back to our hometown Cleveland roots is an important decision right now. And and he kind of lamented. He told us that navigating the restaurant industry, like we were talking earlier, in this post-pandemic reality, along with other economic issues, it's just more and more difficult. And he said they ultimately determined a smaller group of restaurants would be better for their operations and guest experience. I'm just sorry they closed the one in Cleveland Heights, which happened before the pandemic, actually. Yeah, and Lisa, I don't know if you were in town during the heyday of this place. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were. When it first opened, it was the place. I mean, people could not get a seat. It was as hot as it gets. And their expansion was bringing it everywhere. And it just all of a, it just went away. The, the kind of the buzz has gone away. I've seen people complaining about the food. I, I don't know what quite happened, but maybe by shrinking, they can get it back to where they were. And it was an interesting menu. Of course, you know, you, you want to, you know, wear your stretchy pants when you go eat there, but... <laughs> yeah, I couldn't eat there because I'm a celiac, and there was nothing there that was gonna fit my my palate. But yeah, that that was not. It's not health food by any stretch of the imagination. Not a place you go if you have New Year's resolutions. No, and and there are still options out there for folks. You know, Fish tells us that you know his other locations are going to remain open. They're going to have a newly designed menu here shortly. Newly designed cocktail menu and add wraps to their lineup. So those big pieces of bread, you'll have an alternative to those. It's just, how do you get that magic back? And that, mm-hmm. for, for a couple of years there, th- that place was just the magic place to be. And how do you get that back? It sounds like they're trying. We'll have to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County is providing some money to help launch another Cleveland farmer's market. That This one is aimed at a specific audience, although anyone could shop there. Lisa, what would make this market different and special? Yeah, it's a group called Resource Cleveland, and they just received $150,000 in ARPA money from the Cuyahoga County Board of Control to build a commercial kitchen and a retail space at Ohio City Farm on West 47th Street. Um, the market will have 13 vendors, eight of them for were for fresh produce, the others five will be prepared foods. It will also serve as a drop-off lo- location for what they call culturally important foods to refugees who are awaiting federal food stamp benefits. Um, It's also for low-income families. You don't have to be a refugee. They also want to provide jobs and wraparound services to refugees. Also things like, uh, you know, fresh food, cooking classes, growing culturally specific crops and other things. They really want to reach about 350 people in their first year and hope to hit a thousand people within four years of operation. And as I said, they want to partner with providers for health screens like diabetes, hypertension, or any other diet-related medical conditions. And it's close to the West Side Market, which at first blush you think, well, well you're going to have to compete with the West Side Market. But because it's such a niche kind of market, it could do well. It could actually benefit from being close to the West Side Market, right? Yeah. And, you know, there are people, we have a lot of refugees from a lot of different countries and just not to mention our, our ethnic communities of longstanding, you know, and they, when refugees come to a new country, their food, they miss their food. It's a comfort to them. So to be able to have a place to shop where they can find their culturally specific foods is a big thing. It makes them feel at home. We gave the county holy hell deservedly for the way they squandered a bunch of money from the ARPA funds, but you got to give them credit. This seems like a very worthy investment of that money uh, and will benefit the community in a, in a big way. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Finally, Sherwin-Williams makes headlines each year for revealing the color of the year. Lisa, what is it? And should we expect to see it featured anywhere in the new company headquarters taking shape on public square? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But the color of the year for Sherwin-Williams this year is called Upward, or its code name is SW6239. They describe it as a denim blue with a calm gray undertone. They also call it a breezy, blissful blue that's found when we slow down, take a breath, and allow the mind to clear. It is a pretty color, but to me, it looks like chambray, which is kind of a, like a light denim color. It's, it's, a, it's a nice color, and it does have that gray undertone. Um, it's completely opposite the color wheel of Pantone, which Pantone really kind of started the color of the year trend years ago. Their color of the year is peach fuzz, which is kind of like a, a, a peach. They say it reflects a desire for kindness, compassion, and connection. Benjamin Moore's color of the year is Blue Nova 825, which is another blue, but it's a much darker blue than Sherwin-Williams up word so the blues that you talked about sound like they're cool colors on the color yeah if you know what a chambray shirt looks like denim to me is a dark color but this is more like a chambray like a light light denim blue but pantone is going for the warm 2024 with its color with its peach peach fuzz fuzz. yes okay (laughs) all right that does it for the wednesday episode of today in ohio thank you for listening thanks lisa thanks courtney we'll be back on thursday